Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Okay, we're off. This is the beginning of the show. Um, whether uh, you like it or not. Whether you like it or not, I've got my Subway salad. See, um, I've got a couple of pumpkins in the background as well for Halloween. Yeah, for Halloween. No, what, what do you mean? <laughs> um, yeah, yes, yeah, for Halloween. I should have, uh, should have really nailed that, but I didn't. Um, I thought of the joke after I'd already... Yeah, anyway. Got a couple of pumpkins. Looking forward to Halloween. My sister's birthday is on Halloween. Oh, yeah. So we've never really... It's a bit like being born at Christmas. You know what I mean? It's like, um, well, we'll have like a... Spe- it, must be, it must be annoying for her. I don't think she's particularly into horror films. Or like um, spooky stuff. So... Uh, uh, so it must be quite annoying for her to sort of like have a, her birthday like attached to Halloween, but it is. But we've never really celebrated it. But I've got a couple of pumpkins, and I'm going to fucking carve the fuck out of them. <laughs> By the way, what's your name? What's my name? Mm. How do you mean? We haven't introduced ourselves. Oh, my name's Nick. <laughs> my name's Nat. Is it? This is. Nathaniel Nat, Metcalf. Nat, Nat, who, yeah, Nathaniel Metcalf. You fucking too fucking too fucking right, right. I'm like Prince. Uh, I've only uh, got one name. I'm like Prince Harry because I've got two names. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're off. That's great. First rule of fan club. You're listening to fan club. First rule is tell your friends. If you it, it, like, if uh, if you're unfamiliar with the format of the show, it's utter shit for about two hours. Go on with your day. I'm so annoyed. I ordered my subway at one. Mm-hmm. It took him like after it says it will be 15 minutes, and then. For, after 40 minutes, it says he's round the corner for, and he'll be, he'll be there in a minute. And it was that for 20 minutes. And at, then the start it, of, um, at the start of lockdown, um, I ordered a Chinese takeaway at about 6.30. And it's still not come? <laughs> yeah, it's still not come. <laughs> and he said he was going to be there at 7.30. And he went, oh, it's an hour, but I imagine a lot of people are ordering food in. 7.30, it had a thing apologising, saying... It was going to be 15 minutes late. And it was like, okay, that's fine. And then it, then it went to 8 o'clock, when it was going to arrive. And then at 8 o'clock, I just couldn't get in contact with anyone. And I was trying to ring up. Then I finally got through about 10 o'clock at night and said, I've honestly, I've ordered this thing. And they said, yeah, it's busy. <laughs> <laughs> that was their only response. And it turned up at 11, 11 p.m been waiting since half six. Oh well i can okay if we're doing this then uh <laughs> it's not near the beginning of lockdown and i got in i don't know what time i got in but i got in about like 9 30 and i couldn't quite decide what i wanted and i was just like so at 10 o'clock i was just like i'm gonna get a curry ordered a curry they said it'll be an hour so i got to 11 and they said yeah it's running late so they got to half 11 and said, it's running late. And then they got to 12 and I was just like, okay. And then they phoned me and said, it is coming. Don't worry. And it's, but like, it's just taking some time. I was like, it's definitely coming. Cause I'll have like a plan B. 
I said, it's definitely coming. I was like, okay, so it's 12. Then it got to one. And they were like saying, yeah, it's definitely coming. I was like, look, look, why don't we just cancel it? So no, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And then it got to like one thirty. And uh, they said, oh, it's not coming. <laughs> what was happening in between? I've got no fucking idea. I think the guy was driving so long that um, he needed to eat as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> he so, had you with Harry. I was, I was like, but it was like, it, it was, I was really annoyed because it was a Sunday night and at one thirty in the morning they said, oh, yeah, your food's not going to come in. And you just like, yeah. oh. Well, I wish you had told me two and a half hours ago, so I could have like ordered something else. But I, like, yeah, that's all right. It's all right. Anyway, how is uh, how is uh, how is your week been? Has it been all right? It's been all right. It's been all right. I've been um, filling time. Uh, it seems like, but not not done anything. It's tremendously exciting. Um, how's your week been? Great. You've been oh, yeah. Very busy. Oh yeah, I haven't seen much of you. You've been. Uh, Keep a low profile. Um, yeah, I've, yeah, I've just been, I've been busy. I'm filming something at the moment that I can't talk about, but um, um, so that's taking up a lot of time. And because um, you haven't even told me what it is, it's so not that. Interesting. It it's must not, be like a Star Wars or something like that, probably. Yeah, I'm filming. Are you I'm filming now. Now he's got COVID. <laughs> oh, he hasn't got COVID. He hasn't got COVID. He didn't go to the gym, and so he, so they said, "Well, let's say he's got COVID, so that we can have two weeks for him to go to the gym and work out." That was what happened, I think. That's apparently um, one of the things, isn't it? That's 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 the rumor, um, but we don't talk about rumors here. We talk about we just make shit up. <laughs> we we um, uh, no, it's not as well. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm doing some filming anyway. So I've just been uh, I've been busy, but I still managed to watch a couple of things. Um, yes, what have you been a fan of this week? What have I been a fan of? I've seen a few things actually. <coughs> I've been catching up on um, some films I've already seen. I've been watching uh, a couple of uh, three, in fact, I think Hammer Dracula films. I've been trying. I saw to- that. I saw I saw you online. I love, I love them, and I can't tell how good they are. Do you know what I mean? Someone was saying, oh, that's a good one, or this one's underrated. And I, I just found myself going, do you know what? I really find it hard to tell what, what ones are meant to be bad and what ones are meant to be good, because I just love them. And I think it's not – I don't know if it's, there's much critical thinking going on. I think they're brilliant. And yeah. every time I watch them, I love them. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, if people don't like this one, I don't know what it is they don't like about it. I think, I think the thing is that they're B-movies, aren't they? And, yeah. um, and it's got as much mileage as, as that. Hmm. If you want something that's slick and well-made and all that stuff, then hmm. that's, it's probably not for you. True. Um, there's a lot of B-movies I watch, though, and just, you know, I'll never, ever see them again. And there's some that I can watch again and again and again. Yeah, well, it's got the added mileage that um, it's Christopher Lee being a legend. Like, it's a legendary performance. It's a career-defining performance. But the films, they're all filmed in the same room. And they're, they're sort of like, when you when you work out the, the, the setting and the scenery, you kind of like, 
it's sort of like a little secret, a magic secret that lets you into working out just exactly how cheap the films are. And they're it's, all super formulaic. You know exactly the setup. They introduce all the characters and you go, right, well, she's going to become a vampire. He's going to be the hero and he's going to kill Dracula at the end. It's all very like, um, don't go to the castle. I will go to the castle, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dracula's there. I mean, to be fair, if most people left Dracula alone, no, that's not true. He would probably send uh, Clove, his henchman, into the grass. Oh, fucking Dracula's a bad cunt. You know, he, he would yeah, fucking. Not, I was going to try and stick up for him, but he's not. He's not a good guy. Actually. You just think if you prod the bear, it won't. It, of course, it's yeah. going to bite you. But like fucking, no, Dracula is one bad cunt. I'd say right. he right. would definitely Maybe. come down. He'd come down from uh, uh, Castle Castle Dracula, and he'd he'd, he'd bite. He'd bite. He'd bite some villages, no matter what. Um, so it's all right. I understand. I'm, I'm not. I'm not on his side, right? No, you're right. You're right. But you know, he's not human. No, but some people do go up and just bother him a bit, and it's you like, can't. Yeah, you, you can't judge him based on uh, human standards. <laughs> you know, he's a diff- he's, he's a vampire. So yeah, vampires are going to be like what vampires are. Hmm. Yeah, you can't judge him by the same things that you judge. You know. Your mate down the road, or your dad, you know, he's a he's a vampire. <laughs> so, so you know, uh, people say he's a bad, he's a villain, you yeah. know, but he's not really. He's just doing what he knows. It's just yeah, it's just what comes natural. Um, and that's uh, that's maybe you know, if we're all a little bit more open-minded, uh, there'd be a lot less stakings. Um, so, which 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 Dracula films did you watch? I saw uh, Dracula AD nineteen seventy two. I saw Scars of Dracula. I saw Taste of Blood of Dracula, um, and I saw Dracula has risen from the grave, which is one is probably the one I've seen least. But again, you go brilliant, love it. That's the one with the front cover of him going uh, like that, right? Yes, but they're quite all quite similar. There's somewhere there's um, Dracula Risen from the Grave is um, it's more of a it's got, like a it's got like a blue and gold poster. Yes, it does. That's the one. That's the that's the I had that postcard when I was at uh, art, uh, uh, doing my art A levels. Was it A levels or GCSE? I basically I made a comic book. I, I, I drew and wrote. A comic book about vampires. It was called Reverend Crypt, and it was about a reverend that went around, like a vicar that went around killing vampires. It was really good, actually. And um, it was like eight pages long, though, it was really short. Uh, and I had to do loads of vampire stuff, and I had that, that poster on a postcard for like years. I've never seen the film. But um, Dracula has risen from the grave. I like them. So it's Halloween, it's Halloween. This, this week, and I've been thinking. I watched what I watched Hubie Halloween on Netflix. Oh yeah, that's on my list to watch. I'm going to watch that this week. Maybe I'll watch the, it on Halloween. The Adam Sandler movie. Um, 
Yeah, the Netflix Adam Sandler movie. There's a trailer on Netflix that just starts playing whenever you sort of like scroll over it. I've watched and the trailer and it appears that it's got Ben Stiller as the character from... Uh... That's a shame. That's a shame that they added that in the trailer. It's like, it's the longest trailer for any film I've ever seen. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. And it was so long and the film looked so fucking shit that I was just like, I think I watched the trailer for two minutes and then I was just like, I can't, I can't be bothered to get to the end of this. So I just stopped watching it. Um, and then it was Halloween. And I was like, oh, I, I, what, did I, what did I watch? I'd watched the Borat movie, the new one. Have you seen I it? I saw that, yeah, I saw it. So, I liked it more than you did, I think. But I think going in, I'd seen so many people not like it online that I wonder if I liked it more. I, hmm. I really liked it. I'd only seen people saying that it was genius. Okay. And that it deserves to win the best Oscar for best picture. Um, um, you know, they managed to make it during lockdown, which is impressive. I think that's really impressive. I really like that that's part of the kind of narrative. I mean, more than the others, I think, although it's been years since I've seen the first one, it feels like you can kind of see the joins a bit more, right? You can kind of figure out how they did things. Certain, certain It doesn't feel like it was all filmed in that order, uh, but... By doing it's got, it that way, it, it's been it, they've imposed a narrative on it, which I really enjoyed. It's got sort of like two storylines that are going on. Mm. You've got like, you know, in the first one, they sort of dealt with racism in America. In the second one, they're dealing with like feminism in America. So you've got the feminism storyline. But then you, which I think is really clever because mm. he is so well known. It was just like, how are we going to, you know, they, they sort of like break the fourth wall a little bit and they address the fact that he's so well known. Yeah, that the now, movie has Borat. come out now, and so people recognise him. And so they they recognise him, but they also have his daughter in it, who's sort of um, who who goes in and does missions for him because Sasha Baron Cohen can't get. I thought she was incredible, and I was trying to work out who she was and where she <coughs> came from. And I assume she must be something like SNL or something that I haven't seen. And she is just like a Bulgarian actress who's been in a few a handful of films, but that's it, really. It's not. Oh, really. Um, yeah, I thought she was great, and I, I, she, she, I think, um, yeah, I think she was great. Uh, but, but so you've got the feminist sort of storyline, and then you also have the fact that uh, COVID comes along, and I feel like these two halves don't really join together. I'm not going to like overthink it. Basically, I really laughed out loud three or four times, and then I just felt like a lot of the scenes were very short, and I didn't really see uh, the point of all of it and then it's just like okay uh, yeah so I mean, anyway I don't really want to get into it it's called fan club right so, and uh, but after I saw the Borat movie and then after that I needed cheering up so I watched um, Hubie Halloween at that and point you weren't sure it would cheer you up though right I was sort of like, let's get it done I don't want to save it for <laughs> actual I, I don't want to save it for actual Halloween but like let it let, Let's get it done. And um, I loved it. Like, um, I, was pretty, I was pretty drunk by that point. <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe the best way to get it. Like, let's just cut the bullshit. People continuously... Uh, uh, I, I haven't read any reviews for either Borat or, like, proper official reviews for either Borat or Hubie Halloween. Um, but someone was saying that... I said I, I liked it, and then someone posted and said... Um, 
uh, oh, it's been getting terrible reviews or whatever. And you go, well, of course it has. It's an Adam Sandler film. Right. I think that it's ridiculous that people that hate Adam Sandler already continuously go in and watch Adam Sandler films and then are sort of like outraged that they don't like them. Like, you, you have to understand that stuff like Uncut Gems is not an Adam Sandler film. That is a film that Adam Sandler is in and he brings his absolute A-game in terms of being an actor. In terms of, like, films that he's created, he literally makes films for his kids and for his wife and for his mates and he employs his friends and they go on holiday for three months and they film a film and it's kind of like it's kind of like if you don't if you don't get that and if you don't like that just don't bother and this is an adam sandler film and loads of people will absolutely hate it i'm not saying i'm not comparing this to godfather no i think maybe it's the same with these hammer films in a way there was maybe it was one of those there was something i've watched in the last week that after I watched it and had enjoyed it, I'd sort of like Googled some things about it and it'd come up as like 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. And you just go, well, that's mental because it's yeah. great. You know, that, yeah. when things are like that, you go, when things are low on Rotten Tomatoes, it often makes you think, I think these people have missed the point of what this is. Well, yeah, because you've got to judge it on its own standards. And I'm not saying that you need to give it a free pass and lower your expectations and lower your quality level. Mm. What you do have to understand is what it is that you're watching. Yeah. And you have to compare it to stuff like Little Nicky and The Waterboy. And in that scale, it actually marks quite high. Mm. You know, it's not the worst. It's not Ridiculous Six, which I think is his worst film. Um. You know that is absolutely fucking terrible. Even, you know, I was going to say, even, time of that? it's like <laughs> two and a half hours, isn't it? It's like it's over two hours. I keep thinking that two and a half hours is too long, but I think that it might be something as long as two and a half hours. It might and be how just you be Halloween. What's the? It's an hour and forty-five. Perfect. It's really good. It's got the it's got the um, the woman out of Happy Gilmore in it, which is really nice to see them together on screen again. Um, it's got loads of cameos. There's a really funny. Um, no, it's, I, there's just loads of cameos. Tim Meadows is really funny in it, um, and it's genuinely creepy in a couple of places. It's got a really weird sort of tone because it's basically it's a kids' film, but there's loads of sex jokes in it, and you kind of like go, "Who's this aimed at?" And then you go, "It's aimed at Adam Sandler audiences." You know, any adult that's happy with the sex jokes, it's like, is it, is, is, should be, I guess, happy to let their kids watch yeah. it as well. Well, like, I assumed Eight Crazy Nights was more of a kid's film until you watch <laughs> it and you go, oh, God, it really isn't. It's very, you know, it's, very Eight Crazy Nights, well, it's like the animation is really good. It's like Don Bluth, isn't it? Yeah, someone like that. Yeah, yeah. But, like, it, it, even if it's not Don Bluth, it looks like a Don Bluth movie. Like it's the, got, Yeah, it's got some quite high-profile people involved in it, I think. Um, yeah, so Eight Crazy Nights is uh, Adam Sandler's uh, Hanukkah movie that is sort of set around... Well, it's set around Hanukkah, but it's kind of all snowy and stuff, so yeah. it's kind and of I think like, I just assumed it was a kid's movie without ever... Because it's animated, but yeah. it's not. I just think, like, it's... It, I, <laughs> It's sort of unbelievable that he made like an animated movie. Do you know what I mean? He was he was such a big star that he made sort of like an animated Hanukkah movie. I like I think that that's really I think <laughs> I, I mean he's definitely he hasn't changed his style, but he's definitely used his sort of like fame and his power to do 
interesting things. Um, anyway, so Hubie Halloween uh, is a Halloween movie, and um, and I really liked that. Like it was, it's like a Christmas movie, you know, where all of the family can kind of sit around and watch a Christmas film, but it's a Halloween movie. And then I was thinking, there aren't really, which is a weird thing to say, but there aren't really a lot of films like that. Because, you know, what did I watch the other night? Um, I watched Friday the 13th, part four, right? The one with Crispin Glover in. Mm-hmm. And not only is it not a Halloween movie, in terms of the fact that it's not a Halloween movie, a John Carpenter Halloween movie, uh, it's, uh, it's based around another holiday, Friday the 13th, so it's not a Halloween movie. And when you watch it, it's not really a Halloween movie because it's basically it's like a man with a machete that's going around hacking people up, right? And that doesn't really encapsulate the spirit of the holiday, yeah. of the of, of of the of the of the event. Do you know what I mean? So it's just sort of like, so what is a Halloween movie? Because yeah, technically, um, uh, ET is a Halloween movie. Well, it's set at Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that that's right. And you're allowed to dress up as aliens and stuff for for Halloween. It's like the Saw movies. It's like this is the sort of time of year that we, you're all meant to sit around and watch a horror film, right? Um, but like this, like, I don't, a guy going around a sorority dorm with a hammer attacking people it doesn't feel like. <laughs> Um, Not a nice feeling. It doesn't really encapture um, the kind of spirit of the night. What I, you know, I associate Halloween with like ghosts and witches and the classic monsters, Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> Such a wanker! <laughs> I have to say Frankenstein. <laughs> I have to say Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> but but like Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, werewolves. It's kind of like that. It's not really about a guy with a power tool going around uh, torturing someone. I agree. Tied, I think it's tied to a chair. Rather than like, um, it's ghosts as in someone with a sheet on their head. Yeah. Vampire fangs. And um, it's, it's sort of cartoonish horror, isn't it? It's gonna... It should be fun. Mm. And it should be sort of like, sort of wholesome. Yeah. And sort of for all the family. Even... Um, what so I was talking to someone about this in the week, and uh, it was like, um, so even the movie Halloween is not really a Halloween movie. It's just a film that is set at Halloween. A bit like how Die Hard is not really a Christmas film. It's just set at Christmas. Mm. Like the events happen to take place over Halloween, but it doesn't make me feel particularly Halloweeny. And I could watch a Halloween film at any point in the year. I could watch a Friday the Thirteenth film any point of the year, but. This, when I watched Hubie Halloween, it genuinely felt like the sort of film that, if it was a Christmas film, it's the sort of film that you would watch, like you'd watch Home Alone or something in the lead up to Christmas, and it gets you in the mood for stuff. I watched it and I felt like, ah, oh, it's really encapsulated, um, like, the fun of Halloween. Uh, it is a bit creepy um, uh, in places. So there's sort of like mild horror but you've got like this really great cast of people that are sort of like really just entering into the spirit of things. And um, yeah, and I was just like, oh, they've nailed that. Because I literally finished watching it and I was just like, oh, I feel all sort of like Halloween-y now. And then I watched Friday the 13th Part 4 
and it's just like oh it's so <laughs> it's so it doesn't it doesn't do anything for well the Friday yeah. the 13th films don't really do loads for me I like the character of Jason more than I like the films I think um, I like watching I mean I'm that's my taste anyway but I like around this time of year at the sort of autumn winter I do like watching kind of hammer movies and that's what I do on Halloween I watch I try and find a couple of Hammer movies I've never seen and watch those because they're... And, but again, they're like comfort food. They're not scary. Yeah. They're like um, fun and, um, you know, fake blood that looks super red, orangey colour. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's... it's. I guess but, something else, like the Monster Squad would probably be something quite a good Halloween-y fun mm, film. I, I, yeah, I hate the Monster Squad, but... I um, I like the idea of it. I just, I, I just think that I just, I don't know. Well, it's just, I think they're absolute little cunts in that film. <laughs> like, horrible. And they're meant to be cool and likeable, but they're bullies and they're mean to each other. And I just think it's so on the nose. And you've got the Jewish neighbour and it's just kind of like, it's like, <laughs> I don't hate him because he's a Jewish neighbour. <laughs> You've got to see the film in context, but it's just so on the nose the way they deal with the way they deal with all the stuff. It's just like, yeah, um, I I don't like the Goonies either, and I just feel oh, like I'm it's particularly fond of the Goonies. I feel like it's, it's fine. It's fine. I just don't. I don't have a lot of fondness towards. I like it. I like the fact that it's a classic monster team up film, but and I suppose and and what but what I would say is if you like the Monster Squad, that's a sort of Halloween movie, right? Hmm. Um, Adam's Family, that's a Halloween movie. Yes, yeah. But, um, uh, you know, but um, Saw 6, <laughs> it's like, or Hostel, that doesn't seem to me like it's a, it's like, it doesn't feel like a holiday film, you know? Yeah. It feels like this just sort of like this relentless thing. And like the Universal Horror movies. House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein are probably quite fun to watch. <coughs> the Universal Horror movies... They're not scary. They're not scary. They're, I don't even think that they're creepy. I think they're beautiful. Mm. They're just absolute beautiful works of art. And they're absolutely Halloween-y, but they're not, um, they're not scary on any level. You know, you don't watch them and think, fucking hell, I'm, <laughs> I'm going <gonna, laughs> to leave the lights on when I'm walking around at night. It's like... Um, but that, I, don't, I don't really think that that's the point. I think that, you know... I don't want to watch a film. I, I I love horror films. I love all I love all films, and I lo- and I love horror films. But it's I've never thought about it. I suppose until until I watch Ubi Halloween, and I'm bringing it up because you were talking about Dracula. No, it's no, kind of like, these films is like these to watch a film at, to watch a film at Halloween. It doesn't have to be like the most hardcore gory, scare, scariest film in the world. It just has to have sort of like a certain sort of like charm and feel to it. And I think the best way that I can describe it is kind of like, it's like one of those Christmas films where mm. it gets you in the mood for it. For it. Um, um, yeah, I mean... Well, I guess the other, the other thing that's interesting is the way that people don't like Freddy Krueger, later Freddy Krueger movies, because they say it becomes a parody. So I guess there's a there's a time to watch scary horror, horror films, and it's probably not Halloween, weirdly. It's probably other times of the year. 
I think that's right. Although uh, I think Nightmare on Elm Street does have a certain amount of fun to mm. it. Uh, like especially the later films where they've sort of given up. Mm. Um, like there's just no getting around it. The Friday the Thirteenth films are so sort of like basic and blunt. Like <laughs> it, it doesn't do itself any favors uh, that it's such a rip off of Halloween. Like even down to the t- down to the title, it's kind of like there's a big hit called Halloween. What are we going to do? Uh, Friday the 13th? Sure. All right. It's, it, it, so it's sort of like, it's such, it's such sort of like, um, it's kind of like a copy of a copy. And then, uh, so, so it's like degrading in quality. And the films are so sort of basic. There's so very little charm in it. Friday the 13th 4 is a really interesting film. Which one, is, what's, no, that's not, which one's Jason Takes Manhattan? Is that's, that four? That's eight. Oh, is it? Wow, it's as late as that. Okay. So, is it eight? Uh, what, nine is um, Jason Goes to Hell. Ten is Jason X when he goes to space. So I think Jason Takes Manhattan is eight. So you've got um, Friday the 13th 4, which is the final chapter, which is the very last Friday the 13th film. <laughs> uh, and then you've got Friday the 13th 5, where... Um, uh, it's not Jason in it. They do sort of like Halloween 3, where they sort of like try and reboot it. Like, Jason dies at the end of 4, so they go, right, okay, now we're going to start over and and do something else. It's still... It's still... Everyone thinks it's Jason, but... Spoiler alert, it's not a good one, 5. And then you've got Jason... Uh, is that a new beginning, then, 5? The new, new beginning is 5. Then you've got 6. Um, 6 is the one, I think, that starts with the James Bond parody... And it's got loads of jokes in it, and it's uh, sort of played for laughs. And they break the fourth wall. Someone like looks down the <laughs> down the lens and does like <laughs> a thing. And they do like really funny things with edits. Oh. Where... I mean, the third one's in three D, isn't it? And it makes a uh, virtue of being in three D. Well, the third one is in three D. So the third one is the first time you actually get Jason Voorhees looking. You know, so the first one, Friday the Thirteenth. That's a great film. That's sort of it's sort of it's sort of. Uh, great but cheap and an absolute rip-off of Halloween, but it's kind of like, it, it, it's all right. Uh, second one, you get Jason Voorhees for the first time, who's um, an adult. In the first one, he's um, a, a dead kid. <laughs> and in the second one, he's like, a, he's like this huge sort of like bodybuilder that lives in the woods. Third one, he picks up a hockey mask, and then you've got, like, oh, it's Jason. And that's in 3D. That is proper shit, that film, where I think there's a bit where a guy is juggling oranges towards the camera, and it's just like, whoa, and you go, like, when you said there was going to be... the BFI in 3D, and there's a scene which takes about, actually about three or four minutes of a woman putting out laundry and just washing this kind of sheet towards the camera. Yeah. It's like, okay, all right. It's like... When you said you were going to make a Friday the 13th film in 3D, I didn't think that you were going to be trying to thrill me with the uh, orange, <laughs> with the horrific sight of an orange coming towards my face. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what are you doing? Um, and then, um, and then, then you get to four where they think, right, we've had enough of this, which is weird because it's like the first time they've really got their shit together and they know what they're doing. Then you have Jason Voorhees right from the beginning. Um, 
and you've got Crispin Glover in it, who's doing this really fucking weird performance. Um, and you sort of like think he's the star, but really he's just a generic kid that they've got to be in it. And he's just literally going to get killed at some point. So he's just this generic kid that's in it. What year is that? Is that pre the future? No, probably about the same time. Um, I haven't got the dates, but um, uh, yeah. But so they would have just cast him as a kid, and then he comes along and he does this really weird sort of performance, and it's sort of like he really stands out and makes the film. So it's sort of a surprise that he does get killed, but it's like because uh, you just assume that he's going to be the final guy, but now he's just like another. It's just another teenager to to kill, and then. Um, so I think that I think four and uh, uh, so yeah I'm sort of like working my way through them. Um, so four, it's all right, but it's uh, but it's like it's sort of without Crispin Glover in it, it is sort of like kind of. I mean, it's a bit crazy to say that Friday the Thirteenth Four is a bit generic. It is, but they do sort of start trying trying to make things interesting and different, and they they mix stuff up the further they go along. But you can kind of watch them whenever. They don't really... I don't know. A, a guy in a hockey mask... Oh, it's a great costume, actually. But a guy in a hockey mask killing people with a machete doesn't necessarily make me go, ooh, autumn. <laughs> you know? um, but then I feel like the same thing kind of with Michael Myers. I just think... This has to... I think, in terms of Halloween, there should be some sort of like supernatural element. Yeah. Um, I think I saw a tweet from former fan club guest Kim Newman the other day saying that I think including Freddy vs. Jason, there are 12 Friday the 13th films. And he says, and it's mad that how bad the 12th one is that they've never made Friday the 13th the 13th. And you go, yes, it is mad. Just seems insane that if you're at that point now, the 12th one must have been so bad that they haven't gone. Let's no. just do the 13th one. It's like when they released Quantum of Solace in January 2008. <laughs> yeah. You go, why didn't you release it in December 2007? You'd have had 007 on your fucking posters, you fucking pricks. Why didn't you plan it? Why didn't you plan it? That'll only happen once. Your main character is called 007 and there's a year that's 007. <laughs> And you released it in 2008. I'd like, I will never, the Quantum of Solace is a piece of shit, but I will never get, I will never, I will never get over that. You just think, fucking hell. So yeah, why haven't they made Friday the 13th the 13th? It's like, and actually the last Friday the 13th, the Platinum Dunes Friday the 13th remake thing, it wasn't that bad. My favourite Friday the 13th is Jason X, because it is so tongue-in-cheek. You go, they should have all been tongue-in-cheek. It should have all, it's still sort of like got horror elements, but it's kind of, they should have all sort of like had a little bit of like a glint in their eye and kind of thing. Oh, we know, we know, we know. Because comedy is sort of free. You know, it, it, it doesn't require makeup or anything like that. You can kind of like have a tone to it that doesn't yeah. cost, that doesn't cost anything. And, and I think a lot of that stuff doesn't, is, is what makes those films fun when you're older. And I think it's a kid. When you watch horror films like that when you're a kid, you miss out on any of the fun stuff. Whereas it's only really when you're older, it's what you get out of it as a sort of second viewing. Or as a, oh, I didn't realise it was a joke. I just took that as a kid. I just found it scary. It adds value. 
that's I mean that's of that's why I like Ghostbusters. That's sort of a Halloween film. Mm. That's why I like Ghostbusters. It was a horror film when I was a kid when I first saw it, and then when I was an adult, it was a comedy. And I like things that grow up with you. Um, we've got to play a song. Um, let's play a song and then uh, talk some more. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. And we're back. We're back. We're back. Uh, it, weirdly, Halloween 3 is probably the most Halloween-y Halloween film. Yes. Yeah. Because it's specifically about Halloween. Like, it's about... A t- it's the one where they went, oh, we're not going to do another Michael Myers film. So they uh, dropped Michael Myers. That ended in Halloween 2. And then they make a film about an evil, the Shamrock uh, Company, uh, an evil a toy manufacturer that make masks that um, kids buy for Halloween, and then it turns them into the sort of like, um, what does it do? It sort of like melts their faces. Yeah, they like melt on their faces or something, and they become <laughs> like zombie things. It's like, yeah, and it's specifically about Halloween. It was a, there's even a, a scene in it where the film, the original film Halloween, is on a TV, and they're kind of, kind of like, no, 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 that's just that's that's just a film. This is this is the real real life. This is real life, man. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and then no one liked it, so they went, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> we'll bring Michael Myers back for the fourth one. Um, yeah. Uh, I, so did you go to lots of Halloween parties when you were growing up? I just said we were just saying that to Natalie just then. It was just uh, yeah, I know. I, I was I was trying to be like slick and professional. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of queuing you up so that you could tell a story. Right, like like um, Des O'Connor. Yeah, like Des O'Connor might do. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's funny you should say that. I've got a real thing about that. Um, <laughs> well, right. well, remember the best Halloween. I think the best Halloween. Um, was when um, we did that gig with Katie Wilkins. Yes, you did. Uh, I think you stink. You just I dressed you, you, as Marty McFly. You did like a set just as Marty McFly, which is a really fucking good costume that you've got there. Okay. And then uh, and K- Katie dressed up as a witch, and then um, uh, and then we, uh, me, Gemma Whelan, and Rob uh, did. Uh, I think you stink in a pub. And a nice venue, that quite big. It was quite and. It, I don't know. It felt like a nice gig in that, you know, it turns up and it's full and it's, I don't know, how many people were there? Um, yeah, it was, it, so what year was that? I think that was 2010, maybe. Yeah, like Um And it was like, I used my uh, new success uh, from doing uh, Keep Hold of the Gold. Uh, and I was a big talent. And uh, I used it so that I could uh, do I Think You Stink. And we'd done it in a theatre in 2008 in front of, like, five people for a fortnight in Edinburgh. And we'd never got an audience. And it was, like, this lovely theatre, the Bedlam Theatre, the student one. Uh, and it was, uh, it, was, it was lovely. But we never got an audience. And I think the only day we got an audience was when it rained and it sold out and um, nobody laughed. And it was like, wow. <laughs> Well, you've ruined this because <laughs> you've not really entered the spirit of things. And then, um, 
and then I used my newfound uh, uh, clout to put on I Think He's Think in a pub where we just had all of our props and costumes right at the front of the stage. And it was so sort of like slapdash and put together. And George Mitten, uh, the musician that I um, uh, wrote a lot of the songs with, um, he uh, was ill on the day, so he couldn't turn up. So it was like so like last minute and put together. And um, it was, there was no sort of like curtain to sort of like hide behind. So it was just all on stage. And it was the best it had ever gone because it was so sort of like, it was a com- it was in a comedy club as opposed to a theatre. So, um, so like... Obvious that it's funny, I guess. It was, it was, it's part of a comedy night. You've got the first half of acts and, you know, the second half is a whole show. Yeah. So, and it was yeah. it was great, and and that was when you just like go, oh right, brilliant! I'm a comedian now. When I did it first, I just started doing comedy, but I'd been writing theatre. And then when we did it on that night, it was just like, no, this is a comedy, and people really entered. It's sort of like tongue in cheek, where you're winking at the audience. It's so sort of like corny. A lot of it, it's I don't know. It's a weird tone. I can't really describe it because That's when we is Halloween and um well we were meant to be doing it this year I think the Soho I think we were going to be doing it at the Soho Theatre on the build up to Halloween and the album was going to come out and it's just like lockdown has just fucked everything really but um so we're all sort of disappointed that we, we weren't doing it because it was so much fun last year doing it with those guys um but yeah that was sort of like that was one of the best Halloweens because just everyone really got the tone and it was sort of, it was almost like custom made for it. Mm. Um, but yeah. Uh, but so you've been to, um, so tell us about, <laughs> tell us about your Halloween experiences. I know when I was a kid, I'd go to Halloween parties, not trick or treating. I don't think that was ever a big thing when I was a kid. I'm not sure it really happened. I think it's one of those slightly new inventions in this country. It's a thing you used to see in American movies, but I don't think kids ever went trick or treat. Um, no, no. And, uh, Halloween but, parties where we dress up and do apple bobbing, and we'd probably end up getting some sweets or something. But and there would probably be like something like cake that was had some green colouring in or something to make it look a bit like spooky or a horrible colour, but it was quite nice. Or something. That'd be about it, really. It was that always my, when I was a kid. It was always my sister's birthday, so it was kind of like, um, oh right, well, you know, it was it was her, so we'd do stuff for her birthday. You know, we used to dress up as sort of like uh, skeletons and witches and stuff. My sister had like a witch's hat and stuff, but I think that she sort of like got sort of a bit bored of it, and I was just like, it's my birthday. Can we just have a little bit of fucking respect? <laughs> it's like, yeah, sure. Um, I went to like a few, uh, I just remember one Halloween party I went to, um, I was so scared of the song Thriller, like the bit when Vincent Price does his like monologue and I just found it so like, like bone shatteringly terrifying and, um, everyone was listening to the song and I kind of like left, left the room when it was on. I was sort of like casually sort of like hanging out in the hallway, just Know, trying to sort of like uh, bide my time while the song played out, and then uh, the kid's dad was just like, "What are you doing out here?" And I was like, "Oh, nothing, just like uh, hanging out." He goes, "Well, the party's not out here; it's in there." 
And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, but I just, right. And he just forced me to go back into the room. And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's like, you know, you have those, like, nightmares of when um, uh, adults sort of, they're meant to protect you. Yeah, but they put you in there. But he actually just forced me to go into this thing that absolutely terrified me, and I just didn't want to go in there. Um, Turned out Vincent Price wasn't the scariest thing in the uh, thriller video for kids either. (laughs) It was was somebody else. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, so that was that. And then there was another Halloween where um, I was uh, standing in the playground at school, and... um, a kid ran past me and he pushed me and uh, I fell onto the fence and I split the back of my head open. And I was like, so then this kid, and I was like pissing blood out the back of my head. Uh, I, I think I was like five or six and this kid saw it and it was a, we were in a playground where my sister's three years older and she was in the top infant's and, I, and so we had sort of like, there was sort of like a, a, a brick wall that separated our playgrounds. It wasn't like a complete wall. It didn't like block us off. It was like a, like a, a partial wall with like mm-hmm. a pathway either side of it to get from one playground to the other. And this kid just ran into the the big kid's uh, playground and found my sister and said, hey, your brother's, your brother's uh, bleeding. And my sister just ran over, and then my mum ended up having to pick me up. And it's her birthday, and I'm just, like, bleeding. And she's there going, fucking hell, Nick's stealing my fucking limelight again. And I'm just bleeding everywhere. And my mom, I think that must be terrifying if you're a teacher. Do you know what I mean? You must be like, oh, shit. We must, must be absolutely terrifying. It was just, I couldn't see it because it was the back of my head. But... Mm. Uh, I mean, I tried to turn around really quick to get a look, but I didn't. I couldn't. I was never fast enough. And my mum came along. We went to uh, Whittington's Hospital, uh, which is just up the road now. And, um, yeah, we stayed in, like... It was like... It wasn't casualty. I guess it was, like, A&E. And we were there for fucking hours. And it was just, like, really, like, eating into my sister's birthday. And it was like, oh, no... And then we never got seen in the end, but we had a neighbour, a friend's friend's mum was um, a nurse. So my mum just ended up taking me home and uh, the, ner- the, the, the friend came over and uh, I remember they just ch- cut out chunks of my hair and then I ended up getting like butterfly stitches on the back of my head. Okay. And, I, and then I guess we had cake. But it was sort <laughs> of like... It ruined my sister's birthday. I've got this scar on the back of my head, which is kind of like my little, um, uh, you know, uh, it's, it makes me look pretty tough. Yeah. It's quite good blood and scars for Halloween as well. It's great. I didn't need any makeup or anything like that. Right. But I think my mum was like freaking out. And yeah, so, you know, your, your brother's head's been split open. And you go like, oh, right. Yeah, cool. Nice one, Nick. That's really ruined. That's ruined my ninth birthday. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Anyway, so if she's listening, sorry. I didn't do it deliberately. <laughs> Happy birthday for Sunday, Saturday. Saturday, God. What a year to have Halloween on a Saturday. Oh, and everyone's just going to be sat indoors. 
Everyone's going to be saying, yeah, yeah. But it's not, it's not like a thing over here, is it? But there was a really cynical kind of like, oh, bloody hell, this is an American invention. And you go, yeah, sure, but it's fun, isn't it? Mm. Kind of breaks the year up. It kind of, yeah. yeah. I prefer it to sort of, I prefer, I prefer, I prefer the idea of it. Well, I don't prefer the idea of it to Christmas. I love Christmas. But it's like, I like the idea of, you know, everyone just being a bit, it's silly, isn't it? Everyone being a bit silly. I know at the beginning of summer when, um, of course, the kids weren't able to finish their year at school. And there was lots of people saying, oh, it's tragic, really, because this will be the first year where these kids won't even get to go to prom. And you go, prom? When did that start here? <laughs> what, in England? Yeah. They won't even be able to go to the prom. I don't understand. Well, I guess that's a thing now. Kids do proms and things. I don't understand um, uh, when people dress up as sort of like Super Mario and stuff like that. And you go, like, like any any outfit will do. What, for Halloween? Yeah. Yeah, I don't like that. I think it has to be horror related. I've just thought, though, you know in Karate Kid when he dresses up as a shower? Mm. Is, that, is that psycho related? Oh, maybe. I've never thought about it. I've just thought about it because it's, sort of like, it's such a random kind of like... Uh, Fancy Jess costume. Um, I watched Psycho the other night. Um, uh, I watched Suspiria and then I watched Psycho. Suspiria is about witches. That is, guess that's Halloweeny. I, yeah, obviously I love that. But when watching it, it made me go, which is kind of weird, but it made me go, oh, I'd really like to watch the remake again. I think oh, it's Suspiria. Yeah, 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 it's great. I've not really thought about it since I saw it. I remember I really liked it when I saw it at the time, and I and, and I think it's the best. It's the best sort of remake, mm. where um, and to, I think Dakota Johnson's brilliant in it. Yeah, and I had no idea. Like I think of that. Like I've not seen any Fifty Shades of Grey movies, but you kind of assume they're quite bad films. Yeah, he, I don't recognise her in when she's in that, and he's like, "Who's this?" <laughs> yeah, great. I just assumed that the Fifty Shades movies were sort of trash and um, not worthwhile and all of the actors that were in them were kind of like... It's a sort of a miracle that Robert Pattinson has gone on Mm. to have the career that he's had based on Twilight. And I just sort of like lumped it all in with all of that stuff. Mm. So I've not seen them and and they're not meant to be great but I haven't really got an opinion on them. But when you hear that the star of the Fifty Shades movie is in the Suspiria remake, you're kind of like, oh, really? And then when you watch it, and she's brilliant in it, you go, oh, right, well, maybe I need to reevaluate her. Supposedly, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of that film, which I really like the idea of, was the director had, as a kid, had never seen Suspiria, but had grown up in Italy, and would see the posters everywhere, and would read about them in, like, Fangoria and things, but he didn't see the film. But he says this movie is almost the movie he imagined from reading all the synopses that were in horror magazines and what he thought was happening based on like black and white stills and things. And it's like, actually, I really like that as an idea of making a remake. It's got all the elements in it, but it's not necessarily the same story. It's a a, a companion piece. It's the best kind. It's the best kind of remake where it's a good film in its own right, which is a bonus because if it's a good film, then you can't really complain. Um, but it uh, it doesn't it doesn't try and eclipse the original. It just sort of like adds its own spit. It's like a it's like a it's not even like a cover version. 
Um, but it, was make, it made me think that the Gus Van Sant Psycho remake is actually a piece of genius. I think it's because because when Gus Van Sant remade Psycho, you know he could have done anything. I think it was just off Goodwill Hunting, wasn't it? And it was mm. like you can you can do anything. What mm. do you want to do? And he kind of chose to make a film that is all about the importance of cinema, you know. And that original Psycho movie is lightning in a bottle, you know. It's kind of you. It was it's the perfect cast. It was the perfect director at the perfect time in his career, you know. Uh, it was the perfect subject matter. It's, it's an amazing film, that original Psycho. And so when he made the remake, it's a shot-for-shot shot remake, and it's uh, badly cast. Um, like, it's so miscast that it's almost like he's making a statement and saying... I think there's a lot of that about it. It feels like an art film, doesn't it, that he's making a point and saying, it doesn't always... You can't... Yeah, it is lightning in a bottle. This is, I'm doing it again, and it's not the same. Even shot-for-shot, shot, I'm doing... Shot, shot, even when I'm trying to replicate it as closely as I possibly can, it's still not going to be the job. And I think it's really great. You know, I'm like having like a, 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 a revision of it where it's just kind of like, um, obviously it's, a, it's sort of like a shit film, but I think he was intending to do that. I think it's actually a piece of genius because he's basically made a film that is saying, go and watch the original. It's, it's, it's incredible. Whatever I've done is yeah. a pale limitation and it's, um, and it's rubbish. And his like, career is, is very much like he's not someone who was ever really in the mainstream. And if anything, that was probably him at his biggest Goodwill Hunting and Psycho. Mm. And so he's always been in kind of art movie, art house kind of director anyway. So it mm. kind of suits, it sort of fits more in with that aesthetic to think of it more in those terms. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. Yeah. But it's kind I, of interesting because it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it was never intended to. Mm. I, I, I think that it's a crazy thing. Everyone was like, going, why would you remake Psycho? And it's kind of like Psycho, that Psycho remake has forever put an indelible negative mark on, uh, on remakes. Mm. And so it's just kind of like, you can't remake classics. And he's gone, not only have I remade a classic, I've remade the classic. I've made remade the all-time classic... For, you know, it, it was either that or Jaws. Do you know what I mean? Psycho completely reinvented cinema. And um, and he's gone, yeah, I'm just going to remake it. And people are like, you can't do that. And he's gone, no, I'm doing the big one. And that will put other people off remaking anything else. I don't know if it is that, if it is as sort of like deep as that. But I was thinking that... You know, it could potentially have been kind of as deep as that, and it's sort of a, it's it's an interesting thing to sort of think about because it was just written off at the time. Anyway, we should do some fan mail. We should. We've only got one fan mail. It looks like. Is that right? Two. Oh, we got two. We got two. All right, Brian, you ready? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm ready. Let's let's give it a go. Let's give it a go, man. Okay. Hi, Nick. I'm a fan of yours from your appearances on Camp Doon. <laughs> They, they led me to seeking out your podcast. I was wondering if you ever seen Digstown, James Woods. Woods, Oliver Platt, and Louis Gossett Jr., even though you've written Grossest Jr. Uh, so, yeah, nice one, Chris. Thanks for taking over. I do apologise. Stood on your toes there a little bit. And noise is off. Michael Caine, Christopher Reese, Reeve. Christopher Reeve. Uh, they, yeah, they, they are two of my favourite movies and seem up your alley, Robert F. I think I've 
Have I, I seen Noises Off? I don't off? know Gig's Town. I'm sort of aware of Noises Off. I don't know if I've... I, I have seen that version of it, too. Yeah. What, Noises Off? Yeah. Isn't is Noises Off a play? Yeah, it's a play. So I've, it's seen, like the, a, I've yeah. seen the play. I've seen the play. I haven't seen... I haven't I've seen not it. seen Gig's Town. I don't know that. I've never heard of that. James Lloyd, Oliver Platt, Lewis Gossett Jr. Good cast. Good cast. I think I'd be... I'd, it would... I'd be intrigued by if I saw it come up somewhere. Not seen it. Thanks, Robert F. Thanks, thanks Robert the, F. Thanks, thanks for the tips. Um, happy Halloween. Hubie Halloween. Hello, Nick, Nat, and Brian. Oh, that's so sweet that I've included me. I'm part of the gang, boys. You know, getting away from me now. How are you all? I do hope you and yours are doing well. Okay, I bought a four cases. Okay, I'd best be getting along to love and now John from Tampa, Florida. Thanks. It's <laughs> nice that you've joined in, John, but you've not. You've just said, "Well, I hope I'm glad you hope we're well. I hope you're well. You can ask a question or something next time. You could actually help us fill up the two hours rather than fucking just coming in and then fucking off again." All right, Brian. Um, Come it's on. really difficult. I mean, I'm just watching you two boys struggle week on week, like, to fill content. Oh, these terrible times. By the way, new album's coming out soon, so uh, everyone go to the shops and buy that fucking ACDC. You can with them in, isn't it? Because you're probably furloughed or something, aren't you, Brian, from ACDC? So you're I've not really doing a lot of gigs and things. I've been following for a couple of years now. Uh, <laughs> Wendy uh, took away my job without really asking when I lost my hearing, but now I'm back again and I'm stronger than ever. Well, um, I'm glad you've got. I'm glad you're doing. We've got some work here on Fubar to keep you going. Well, you boys, you've, been, you've done me good. That's what I'd say. I, I won't forget this in a hurry. That's uh, great. Anyway, I best be off now. Ta-ra. See you <laughs> later, Brad. I think John from Tampa, Florida, um, is John Garrido. Oh, maybe. I always imagine. I imagine John Garrido lives in New York. So did I, I think. But it also makes us think, because we've got a listener called John in Florida, that neither of us assume that we have more than one. (laughs) Must be the same. I was excited to hear that we had a message from Tampa, Florida. And then when I saw John, I thought, well, we do have an American listener called John. But he would have called himself John Garrido. He's written in before. Exactly. But I always imagined it was New York or Philadelphia or, you know, one of one of the inland places, not all the way down in Tampa, Florida. Hmm. Hmm. Well, wherever you are, John, I hope you're doing well. So <laughs> let's uh, let's play a song and then get our guest on. Okay. Fiction in the space between lines on your page of memories. Write it down, but it doesn't mean not just telling stories. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we are back. We're back uh, live. We're not live for a pre-recording. And uh, in the studio, we're not in the studio. We're in our home. So I'm in my living room, and Nat is in his washroom. And we're joined now in. We're joined now. I was just about to say we're joined in the studio. I've just. We're not in the studio. We're joined now. 
over Zoom by legendary uh, boxing promoter uh, Eddie Hearn. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm just trying to find out what this light's doing over my head. Feels like sort of, you know, I've been it gives you a, a halo. down. It looks heavens. like you've come. Yeah, I quite yeah. like it. Yeah, I think it looks good. Yeah, <laughs> you look angelic. I'm, I'm in the bubble. You know, we've got a, we've got a big fight this Saturday, and I'm in the bubble, which is something that we're having to create now. All live sports events, which is very costly and very um, socially disruptive. But we all come in and, and test before we're allowed to socialise and. You know, another, another interesting experience ahead of a big heavyweight fight this weekend between Derek Chisora and Alexander Usyk. So how does, it, how does the about... bubble work? So how many people are in the bubble? So a bubble works. So you turn up, you go into a room, you get tested. You're not allowed to see anyone, talk to anyone. Then you're given your room key. You go into your room and you wait for the results. And it normally takes sort of between eight or ten hours. We have done now 720 tests only two people have tested positive, and I was one of them. Oh, wow. Uh, about three or four weeks ago. So I was over the moon with that one. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a very costly experience, but unfortunately, um, ne- a- a- an absolute necessity now for, for live events. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How, did, how, did you, how, how did you find having COVID? Um, I, felt, I didn't feel great. I mean, I, I felt like I had a bad, you know, really bad cold, sort of, one, you know, the kind of cold that you'd tell people was flu, but actually wasn't really flu. But on this occasion, it was actually COVID-19. Um, the worst thing was I gave it to my dad, oh, uh, who's 72. Um, he laughed and said, I can't believe it. I gave you an empire and you gave me COVID-19. So he wasn't <laughs> particularly happy with that. Um, but he's all right now. He's, he's back, back in the saddle. So we're all hopefully fully recovered. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. Where's um, the, where is the fight? The fight's at Wembley Arena. We've taken over Wembley Arena for the next six weeks, and we have four fight nights here, which uh, is a bit strange to take over a 10,000 arena with, with nobody in it. Um, and, and it's become a big challenge. To be honest with you, I've, I've enjoyed the challenge of producing live sports content behind closed doors because over the years, we've built boxing on the back of live crowds. You know, the ring walk, Sweet Caroline, you know, the buzz and the thrill of fight night. And now we're having to deliver something very different. But... It's an interesting challenge. Does that affect? Uh, does that affect the actual boxers? Uh, not they an say audience? no. They they say that when the bell goes and, and you know if someone's trying to take your head off, you know you switch on quite quickly. But I, I you know I, I look at the Premier League, you know, and all these big football games that are, that are taking part, and when they walk out and there's no one there, how do you achieve that peak performance? Hmm. And I think that's one of the challenges, you know, that all fighters are facing. I mean, this Saturday. We have Alexander Usyk, one of the pound-for-pound greats. You know, how is he going to feel when he walks out with no one there? And Chisora, as well, is used to fighting at a sold-out O2 arena. You know, you've got to raise your game, and and it's a very dangerous sport. And at that level, if you're not on point, you know, then then you're in for a very, very rough night. I guess we both come from a stand-up background, and uh, so if we went out there and there was no one laughing, it does affect our performance. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you get that a lot? For years, yeah, I did, yeah. yeah, I've had ten years of it. Um, but um, but I suppose the difference between like football and boxing is that football, you know, boxing's one on one, and so there's never a point when you're not kind of like uh, switched on. Yeah, totally focused. There's, there's, yeah, I know. 
I'm not really that sporty, but when I played football, I did a lot of standing around watching other people kick the ball. But when you, but when you're, I've, I've boxed as well. And yeah. when I've, when, when you're boxing, you're incredibly sort of like focused and switched mm-hmm. on. And it's almost like the outside world is completely pushed. Well, you're fighting for your life, aren't you? I mean, that's yeah. the reality of it. I mean, it's very, very dangerous. And in, in a team sport like football, you know, I guess there are hiding places and there's mm. no hiding place in the ring. I mean, that's for sure. So, mm. you know, that's what I love about the sport. I think it's one of the most thrilling sports, you know, you could ever watch, you could ever be around. Of course, it's in- incredibly dangerous at the same time. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, you know that you're, you know, someone's trying to knock you unconscious. So you, you're going to be switched on. Mm. Are you doing yeah. things to um, to replace that show feel? Are you able to do anything around it? Yeah, I think around? a lot. A lot is about just you know the perception and the feel. You know, even in this bubble here, you know, we've got media rooms and sort of you know we, we've even got a darts area. You know, we had a karaoke session in the last one. You know, we just we just want to create an interesting bubble that we can actually create great content from as well. I think for every any sport to thrive, you need great personalities. And in boxing, there's so many great personalities and so many great stories. But you have to give a chance for people to see that. And when you're following around all day with a camera and you're watching a mess around, you know, when we had the, the one in the summer, we was having cricket matches. And, you know, all of a sudden you've got some bloke coming in from Chicago, you know, trying to bowl, bowl to some bloke, you know, from Belgium and neither of them have ever played cricket before. And it's just, you know, it's just good content. And we, that's what we are. You know, we're content creators, we're storytellers. And every one of these fighters has a great personality and personalities are what build the sport and get people interested to watch. Exactly. I, I always think that. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a big person that watches a lot of sport, but what I do like, I do like personalities. And so something like in football, you do have people like, you know, Ian Wright or Gaza or something. And that makes it more interesting. Roy Keane. Yeah, for, for people. Yeah, but Roy Keane, you know, yeah. Of course, of course. I mean, look at you know, look at snooker in the 80s, you know, when my old man was involved in the explosion of that sport. I mean, look back at the characters. You know, Alex Higgins, Willie Thorne, Tony Mio. Remember Bill Werbenick drink 12 pints, you know, during the game. Kirk Stevens dressed in all white. Steve Interesting Davis. Dennis Taylor with his glasses upside down. You knew them all, didn't you? Because they all had their own individual characters and personalities. Yeah. And sport can become quite robotic at times because there's so much money involved now. People don't want to mess around. They don't want to show you their personality and have a laugh. They want to practice and sleep. You know, bugger off. I'm just going to, I'm here to win the money. Thank you very much. Goodbye. You know, back in the old days, I mean, look at football. You know, when you read the stories about, you know, the, the sort of drinking culture, if you like, at Manchester United with like Brian Roberts, Rob, Brian Robson and Norman Whiteside and Paul McGrath. I mean, it was mad to think they'd turn up for games hungover. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like all going, oh, how are you feeling? That was a heavy night. I mean, they're going out to play in the Premiership. It's sure. bizarre, but but the stories and the personalities, you know, that, that's what you miss in a way. So I do think it's important to get that mix. Probably not in a pub, though. No, but that's that sort of happened with comedy over the last 20 years where it became, it wasn't sort of, I think there was quite a big drinking culture around comedy and then it became kind of like a business and people sort of realised that, oh, this could actually be a career. And then all of a sudden people stopped going out into the bars and drinking and everything and people started taking it seriously and just like, I'm going to go home and write my material. So it's kind of like, it's a parallel. Um, but do you think that takes the fun out of it? I mean, you know, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think that everyone faces the problem, don't they? When they become like, I, I imagine it's the same with comedy. And you must look at people who 
you know, who have made it on a small hall scene and have been absolutely hilarious and end up doing a, you know, taking a presenting role or something. And, you know, everybody intrinsically within the industry looks at them and goes, what a sellout. Do you know what I mean? Sure. But that happens in every industry, doesn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I get a cue when I did the, the big YouTube fight last year between Jake Paul and KSI, it was huge. But, you know, the hardcore boxing fans said, oh, what is he doing? You know, I'm just trying <laughs> to, to grow the sport. But the problem is, is when you become success, the reason you become successful in any industry is because there's more interest in what you're doing. And if there's more interest, there's going to be more opportunity and there's going to be more money. Unfortunately, the more money will come with the mainstream gigs and the mainstream activities that someone as passionate about you know you guys what you, you do ultimately that can potentially lead to a bastardization of what you're doing do you know what I mean? your book is about success isn't it that you're promoting yeah. that. It's, so it's relentless 12 rounds of success but it's sort of about your life right but it's also about how to achieve success is that right mm. it is and actually i wrote it during lockdown because i'd funnily enough i had a lot of time on my hands and <laughs> It was kind of quite therapeutic for me because when we talk about success, it was like, you know, I used to be in a rat race. You know, I was just so caught up in the hustle of what I was trying to do. It was only really when lockdown came around that I sort of sat back and said, Find me, what have you been doing for the last three years? You haven't you haven't stopped, you know, and sometimes that can lead to you being a bit of a bit of an arsehole, can lead to you being a bad parent or, you know, a bad husband because you're so driven with these targets all the time. And then you start thinking about actually success doesn't equal happiness. You know, same with you guys, you know, or, or we go back to that comedian. They can love what they do. You know, they're in that, that, that little club having a few pints, get up on stage and they walk off with such a wonderful buzz. And all of a sudden they start to get recognized. Then they're presenting a series on channel four, but actually they're thinking, this just ain't me, you know? So is that success? You can only establish what success is. And it's different for every single individual, you know, but the book, the book's quite funny because, you know, it talks about my early life and then it talks about what I feel you need, you know, to establish. And it all comes from passion for what you do, because without that love of what you do, it's impossible to put in the kind of mindset and work ethic needed. But relentless is something that it's a word that me and my dad use a lot because, yeah, all right, we, we, we think we're quite sharp, not geniuses in the slightest, but we will never, ever be outworked. You know, we love what we do. We have a passion for what we do and we are constantly working and evolving. But as the book goes on through the pandemic, it's kind of like, look, this is what you need to achieve. But don't forget, be happy. You know, like what, what you determine is success. I, I was, Last night was, was a, a very unique night for me. I spoke at the Oxford Union and they were asking me questions. I turned around and so I said, what's success to you? And I asked five or six different people and every answer was different. Do you know what I mean? And success can be as small or as big as you make it. But, you know, ultimately, hard work and, and you know, a positive mindset and, and that relentless work ethic will help you get there. But it's all driven by an underlying passion and love for what you do. Yeah. Well, I think that goes without saying, because at, at the point where there's lockdown and you're suddenly, you've got no work to do, mm. your attitude is, I'm going to write a book. Yeah, which well, is a lot different than yeah, yeah. Most people probably go, well, I might take a week off or I might yeah. take... Um, I see how it goes, you know, but yeah, it's it, of, so it says something, there must be a, a, a work ethic that you've got, which is different from a lot of people. And I guess that's a big, a big thing of achieving success, right? Yeah. But I do think that as that still comes from the underlying love of what you do, you know, I, I think anyone that's in a job that they're not happy with, anyone that goes in miserable every morning and looks at their clock every five minutes and says, how long have we got till 5 PM? 
that's not for me. I just feel that when all is said and done in this life, and you know, we're all on borrowed time, I do think you've got to look back going, I've had a great life, I had a right laugh. But I think you've got to say, I did everything I could. You know, we've all got that responsibility, so I couldn't have done any more. I think when you talk about success, success is also built around consistency of doing the right thing. You know, and like when you walk to the ring and you're about to have a world heavyweight championship fight or you're on the sprint line in the Olympics of 100 metres, as long as you can look yourself in the, in the mirror and say, I could not have done any more, then you can let God take over or, you know, destiny take over or whatever you believe in because you've done everything right. And if you do everything right, doors will open and opportunities will arise. It's just, you know, that's a given. Some people are in tougher spots than others. You know, always joke with my dad you know he calls me silver spoon kid my dad was from a council estate in in Dagnan and he made a few quid and I had a privileged upbringing you know my struggle was more about probably creating a name and, and a identity for myself rather than just being Barry Hearn's son which I was probably up to the age of 30 you know and now we joke because people will go up to him and say oh he already earns dad you know <laughs> and and so that that was more for me you know more of a chip on my shoulder to go out there and achieve that but you know it's not easy and, and I think the book's dropped at a great time because it's very difficult at the moment you know opportunities won't arise as frequently as they may have six months ago or a year ago you know it doesn't matter what industry you're in but only the strong will, will survive and only the smartest will, will survive but you know you are right you know when lockdown started you know I created a, a new uh, fitness show for Sky because I felt like people were going to be at home a lot more they can't go to the gym so this is great content for our broadcaster i wrote a book you know i did I, you know i just you know i like to keep thinking i like to keep grinding all the time because it you know it keeps it keeps me focused and it's transferable energy as well where it's kind of like you kind of go well that avenue's closed so you just put it into something else and you keep moving mm. i think i think that short-term goals and short-term mentality is so important you know, to success. But I think it's also really important for mental health. Yeah. Too many people, I feel like, overthink things and worry too much about things that are out of control, out of their control, or may not even arise. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to focus on what you can do today. So, you know, when you're struggling for a little bit of direction or you're straight struggling a little bit for clarity or, or substance, I just, you know, for me, it's a case of writing things down and just saying, okay, look, we're going a bit off track, you know, we, I know we've got to do this, but these are the obstacles you've got to overcome to get there. You know, they could be mundane. You know, you could wake up and say, right, walk the dog, go to the gym, you know, go and buy a bit of food, you know, complete this bit of work, blah, blah, blah. But I guarantee you at the end of the day, when you've ticked all of those off, you'll go, okay, that was a productive day. Mm -hmm. oh, you know, on, sorry, on we go, you know, and that, that's ultimately um, the mentality that, that I've got is just break the problems down bit by bit every day is a new challenge, especially in boxing. You know, it's always overcome problem, overcome problem, overcome problem. It's a little bit soul-destroying at times, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, it's always a challenge. And I think I always say to people, you know, a friend of mine, every time I see him, he goes, oh, you know, I'm just thinking about that, you know, if that happens. And I just, and what, I go, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you just, you're out of control. You know, just focus on today. What are you doing today? Yeah, but, you know, next week, I said, don't worry about next week, you might not be in next week. You know, just take care of the bread and butter and focus on what you can do today and get yourself back on track. You know, and I think short-term goals 
are as important, if not more important, than the medium or long-term goals because sometimes you never even get there. And I have so many conversations. I mean, I'm I'm very positive. Part of my act is being incredibly negative, but I'm <laughs> I'm a very positive person, and so I have conversations with people all the time. Um, I don't feel that they make excuses, but what they do is they imagine worst case scenarios mm. and then they live their life by uh, worst case scenarios. And they sort of like go, well, I won't do that because that might happen. And you kind of like go, that is the very worst thing that could happen. Mm. And, and and it's it's amazing like how it's it's fiction, you know what I mean? fantasy and they've created this fantasy of the very worst thing happening and you go you can put just as much energy in in imagining the best case scenario and trying to make that happen as opposed to the worst case scenario i've had that this conversation over and over again with different people in lockdown and it's kind of um it's just a waste of it's a waste of time it's a waste of energy mm. thinking like that I'm actually, I'm actually the opposite. I'm actually quite negative. That might sound quite surprising, but I think sometimes I do it because there's so much disappointment in boxing and what we do. Sometimes I expect the worst and just, you know, kind of like play psychological games with myself to sort of manage disappointment, I think, mm. is, is the best way to describe it. But I think you've got to be careful with positivity because, again, I, I did a podcast about Middleton. He was going about the fact that positivity... And happiness, just like I said about success and happiness, are totally different things. Like you can, you can, I, th I do think you can bluff yourself into positivity, mm -hmm. where when actually you know you're not really that positive, and actually you don't really believe in what you're doing. Positivity has to have substance. You can't just wake up in the morning and go, yeah, today's going to be a great day. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to really do well today. You have to go out and earn it and work for it mm -hmm. and put the work in the graph. So I think positivity has to have substance, but I think it's quite easy to sometimes bluff yourself. With positivity you know you i'm sure when you talk about mental health how many people suffer and people say oh, i can't believe it you know he was always a happy guy you know he was upbeat mm. you know the next thing you know he might have you know he's, he's in it you know getting help or he's taking his own life and you know sometimes you don't see that side of things because it's, it's more of an underlying problem but um, yeah. positivity is certainly important certainly important but it has to come with substance i think we i think really uh, being realistic with yourself is is the thing yes it's kind of like so at the moment we're in lockdown so i've been writing loads of kind of treatments for tv shows and uh with the kind of state of the tv industry at the moment you kind of like there's a lot of rejection that you have to deal with and you have to pick yourself up after every time you get rejected and you have to kind of like try again and try again and treat every goal not like it's a collection of reject not like it's a collection of rejection but like they're individual things, you know. It's not. It's not like a huge, huge ball of negativity. It's kind of like they're just small individual problems. And then when you get to the point where, you know, let's say you have a meeting about your your project, you know, it might only ever be a meeting, you know. And then you have that thing where people, where, where if you tell someone about, it, they go, "That's amazing! That's amazing! You could make a, you could make a show." And you go, "I could, uh, I could make a show, but that's so far away." Mm. The, the 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 thing that you've got to celebrate is the fact that you've got through that first round and you've got to the point that you've got a meeting. That's the that's that's the thing. And then once you get past, you know, after you have the meeting, you can have another rejection. But you've got to sort of like uh, reward yourself for all of those stages because that might be as good as it gets. You know. And yeah. I think well, it's a bit like it's a bit. I mean, rejection in the book I talk about. I used to sell double glazing. 
right, after school, mm. when I was 16 to 18. And when you talk about rejection, I mean, that is on another level. Now, they give you a phone book and you have to go through each individual name or letter and you have to try and arrange an appointment for a sales rep to go around and talk to these people about windows, right? Mm. Can you imagine, you know, the response you get when you phone? I mean, 99.9% .9 just either hang up or swear obscenities down the phone to you, mm. right? And then one day you find someone who wants some new windows. And that's a great, great feeling, great feeling, you know? And that's where you cut, cut your, your cloth. You know, for me, you know, I'm a salesman and, and there's nothing harder than telesales. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the hardest thing, but you're right. You know, when you overcome the first hurdle, if you start worrying too much, you know, I'll go back to short-term goals. You start worrying too much about, oh yeah, they have a film. And, you know, that's, that's called a fantasist as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, hurdle number one. It's a bit like running a marathon. You know, you just, it's mile by mile, problem by problem. You know, you overcome it until you reach the finish line. But where is the finish line? You know, we never know. For me, the finish line is all is sort of never ending because, you know, I might say, well, I just want to do this and then I do that and then I say, actually, no, let's do this. Let's do this. So um, I guess that's either a sick mind or just very, very ambitious. Where do you feel you are in, in terms of your goals and what you want to do? Do you feel like um, you've achieved what you want to achieve and now you're looking for new goals or do you feel like you're still on your journey? I feel like I'm probably about 25 or 30% through, you know, my career or where I want to get to. Um, I, I never really set out and said, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. It was just a case of doing things right and working as hard as you can and taking the opportunities when they come. Mm. I, I'm definitely aware that we've, we've done well and we've achieved a lot, you know, in the sport of boxing. And for me, you know, it's about expanding globally and, and keeping sort of almost dominating the sport and creating a legacy and, and probably reaching out into new territories that, you know, we're a family business. You know, my dad created the business from Romford. Now we're creating, you know, various sport events over hundreds of days all over the year. And that, that's quite important for me to do. I think that we're having a lot of fun creating content. You know, if that's a live sports event, if that's shoulder program, if that's documentaries, if that's you know, social media, content that that's, we're, we're investing in a lot and I, I like that so I think that the expansion for us is probably to continue into new sports I'd like to have a crack at music definitely not singing but you know creating live events because I think we're very good at that mm -hmm. and also like I said going back to content I like I like creating great compelling content because I think the storylines behind fighters and behind live events are fascinating I mean, you've only got to look at, you know, Netflix during lockdown. I mean, I watched about just about everything you could you could watch. And two of the greatest things that I watched was Last Dance with Michael Jordan and um, the Formula One series, Drive to Survive. You know, all sort of behind-the-scenes documentaries about great sports or great sporting moments. And, you know, I think that's important for sport because I think you have to tell the story. Formula One, I had absolutely no interest in Formula One. I watched Drive to Survive, and now I know all the drivers, I know all the teams, I know all the politics, I know all the arguments, and and that's important, you know, when you're selling a sport. How do you how do you go about um, creating a, a personality? Is it sort of like a manufactured thing, or is it? No, I think it mustn't. Yeah, it mustn't. It mustn't be manufactured. I mean, for me, you've got to be yourself. 
I mean, there's nothing better. You know, you spend a lot of your early part of your life, I think, probably not being yourself. You know, and it's only when you get a little bit older and, you know, you lose a little bit of the hairline and your belly starts poking out a little bit that you actually go, do you know what? I'm comfortable. I'm happy now. You know, I don't care. And it's a great feeling, isn't it? When you just, not, you know, you should always care, but, you know, when you just, you're, you're comfortable, you're happy. And I think it's the same when you're getting these guys to express their personalities. If you can get them relaxed, if you can get them natural, if you can get them happy, they're not actors. You know, sometimes there'll be a fight at a press conference. They'll roll around and, you know, someone's jaw will nearly get broken. And they'll say to me, oh, yeah, we know you put that on. I'm thinking, blind, are you sure? You know, these guys, they don't have it in them to start acting out a role at a press conference or in an interview. So the best thing is to be themselves, isn't it? Some are quiet, some are shy. You know, some are loud, some are arrogant, some are horrible. You know, but that that's all different personalities. So you know that when one guy, I mean, this week we've got Alexander Usyk, who is one of the pound-for-pound greats of the sport, he doesn't speak English, but he looks like he should be a baddie in a Bond film, right? And he's such an engaging character, even with the language barrier. You know, and people people know him as almost like he's the Bond villain. Mm-hmm. You know, then you've got Anthony Joshua, who's this absolute Adonis. You know, then you've got Tyson Fury, who is this big fat lump, who's miraculously got himself into shape and you know inspired, you know, a nation if you like, you know, then you've got Tony Bellew, who's the loudmouth scouser, you know, you've got Dillian White, who's the rough guy from South London, who used to work on a door, now he'll fight anyone, do you know what I mean, so yeah, you, it doesn't matter what people think of you, they just need to have an opinion, that's like that when I get food after a fight, no problem, you know what I mean, keep watching, keep coming, you can think, you can think I'm a knob, you can love me, I don't mind, as long as you have an opinion, it's all good, and that's the same yeah, it's the same for you guys, isn't it? The worst thing for a comedian is, oh, he's all right. People find him funny. I can't stand him, right? Or I love that guy. You know, any of those two, fine. But what I, what isn't fine is, oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, I think I know him. Yeah, not mad on him. Done. Mm. You know, no chance. I think it's about authenticity then. So you, uh, yes. it's not about having a personality because everyone has a personality. So you could be boring, and that could be your personality. Well, look at Steve Davis. You know, yeah, my, yeah. my dad, my dad got to a position where everybody else was was a loud character, and then he had Steve Davis, who was the best of them all. And he was like, "You're going to be Steve Interesting Davis because you're so boring." <laughs> <laughs> and it was like it was simple, but it worked, and it, and that was what they called him interesting because actually he's actually very funny with a dry sense of humour. But mm-hmm. they just sort of said to him. You're so boring. So you're Steve Interesting Davis. And he dined out on that. Yeah. You know, and with his dry sense of humour, he played the perfect part, mm. really, in, in just being himself and being that that guy. So it doesn't, like I say, you need a good storyteller. I mean, you know, I'm a good storyteller. I'm a salesman. So, But you have to tell the story either via me or via content, mm-hmm. you know, by, by showing it to the fans and the audience and saying, this is what this guy's like. And they have to fall in love with him or form an opinion on him. That's, that's key. And, you know, I you think have that, to... is, that is exactly the same in comedy. I think everyone who's successful in comedy, you kind of, they have a thing that when they come out on stage, you go, it's that guy. They're exactly. like, yeah, yeah. you know who Mickey Flanagan is. Yeah. You know who Harry Hill is. They're doing two completely different things, but you know exactly who they both are. And they're two of the most successful people in the country because immediately you go, they're that guy. I know that guy. I know what they're like. So I guess that is super important. Yeah. So it's not about having a sort of, sparkling personality it's about being authentic to who and you are and creating an identity you know yeah. he's that guy you know he 
again, going back to the snooker again, you know, oh, that's Bill. He's the guy who drinks, you know, he drinks the pints while he plays. Kirk Stevens, oh, he's, where's the Alex Higgins? Oh, he's the one that loses the plot and smashes something up after the game. You just have to, you know, they have to resonate with you all the time. And you're quite right, you know, with the comedians as well. And sometimes it's subconscious, isn't it? They come out, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, oh, I like this guy. Oh, I like this guy. Yeah, you know, it's, it's the one that comes out and they go, oh, I don't really know. No, I can't remember this guy. You know, like I said, that's the ones that don't make the impression. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you were saying your, your book's 12 Rounds of Success. So is that is that structured then that you have different... What what are the rounds in the... Yeah, it's, it's about, you know, it's a mixture of stuff, you know, from um, sort of, you know, they're called Play the Hand You're Dealt. They're called Selling the World. Uh, they're called Setbacks Paved the Way for Comeback. So it's, you know, it's... It's a lot of the business fundamentals, uh, building a team, you know, selling, negotiating, overcoming adversity, but also as well, you know, uh, it's conversational about what we're feeling and what we need to do and how you've got to pick yourself up and what you need to go every single day. The, the first part of the book is, is about my life growing up and, you know, my relationship with my dad and, you know, the way that he kind of just sort of educated me to, to get be in a position. I think I was always his little project when I was young to say, you know, son, you've got to take this over one day, you know, and I think I would have been a disappointment to him if I didn't do that because he's very proud of what he's created. And, you know, it's quite fascinating learning, thinking about how he brought me up because at the time you don't really think about it, you know, and you don't think back to the things you used to do. And also really just establishing myself, you know, what I talked about earlier about the chip on the, on my shoulder, of, you know, trying to create my own success if you like and and again you it's only when you get older i find it fascinating how you think at 20 and how you think think at 30 and then how you think at 40 and it's so different isn't it you know it's it, it and i guess when i'm 50 or 60 or 70 god willing i'll make it that far same thing so you're always evolving aren't you you know things things are becoming important to you at different times that might not have been important you know or or when we go back to that word of success it changes all the time doesn't it you can you can imagine what's successful to all of us three now or what we deem to be successful won't be in 10 years you know we may look back and go what was i doing there (laughs) but you know life evolves doesn't it? it changes a lot and i think you have to you have to run with that but i still go back to being comfortable in yourself and what you do it's a great feeling you know, just just to just to say, listen. You know, I, I love the line. I can't remember who said it. I don't know if it was Oscar Wilde who basically said, "I don't like telling lies because I have to remember what I said." Hmm. <laughs> what I mean? And I think that's just a great example of saying, oh, "My dad, my dad's the most honest and brutal person. He don't care. He's like, I ain't gonna mess around with you. I'm just gonna tell you straight." You know, and that way it is. You know, you, there's no games. You know, it, you can just be yourself. Was there a time when you? Did you wanted to do something else though, or did you always want to kind of follow in your well, dad's footsteps? When I when I left university, the last thing I wanted to do was work. Sorry, when I left college, the last thing I wanted to do was work for my dad, because everyone said you're just going to go and work for your dad. You're just going to go and work for your dad. So I had about five years working in the sports management business. I was representing golfers on the European tour and the PGA tour in America. I was cutting my my cloth, if you like, in the sports management world. But when I was going for interviews, they were getting my CV up and saying, can I ask you a question? Are you related to Barry Hearn? I go, yes, yeah, my dad. And he go, what on earth are you doing here? <laughs> you know, I just said, well, I just want to, I want to do something on my own. And by the way, as well, he had an office in Romford at the time in Essex. And I wanted to be in the West End. 
you know, I wanted to be up, up in London, you know, walking around with a briefcase. So, yeah, five or six years doing that. And then you know, there come a time where I wanted to go and work for the family business. You know, I felt like I'd sort of done my graduation period and I was ready and I, I was actually capable of getting a job at the family business off my own back, essentially. Although, you know, obviously my dad was running the business, but I was good enough. And that was important to me as well because it was always going to be. But then came the real challenge of, oh, here we go. Look, he's gone to work for his dad. You know what I mean? And then it was like, okay, so you've got to do something here that is just, quite frankly, outrageous for people to give you any credit at all. And that's really been my biggest challenge is, yeah, you know, I ended up working for the family business. But I didn't want to just be, oh, you know, your dad, your dad was great. You know, I remember your dad. God, he was great, wasn't he? You know, oh, what an operator. Yeah, well, he changed the game. Yeah. What about me? Well, I'll do anything. You know, well, so it is like a healthy competition. Yeah. But also, by not immediately working for your dad, you got to a point where you didn't have to work for your dad. Um, and then by the time you did, it was your choice. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I think it's, it's sometimes, I think a lot of family businesses are very difficult. You know, there's a, there's a great show out at the moment, which we laugh about. My dad, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called Succession. It's on mm -hmm. Sky. And it's brilliant. It's like about, you know, this old guy who's going a bit senile and the kids are ready to take over. And I actually think a lot of the time, you know, um, kids that end up running the family business really balls it up, to be honest with you. And I think that, you know, from, from my point of view, I was determined not to make that happen. But there's always the struggle of trying to overcome what he built, you know. And, and I think it's very difficult to take that to the next level as kind of like the first generation, if you like. Right. you know and um but we're very close you know we have a great relationship we do row now and again but we love what we do and we love you know family is everything to us but you know, as i say on my social media accounts business is close seconds and you know business is business but matrim the business is like stuff it's our, it's our life you know we, we talk about it every day we live it every day we built it from nothing i see a responsibility to take it to, to the new levels and you know, and that, again, that goes back to the passion and the underlying, you know, relentless spirit of just not being beaten, you know, refusing to be at work because you're that passionate about it. You care about it that much. It means so much to you. And when you love something so much, you don't want to let it go. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a job, a sport, a relationship, you know, it, it's, it's going to make you get up in the morning with fire in the belly. And, and like I said, go back to people that haven't found that. And, you know, we're lucky aren't we? You know, you, you guys included, we're lucky to do something that we love doing mm. and we shouldn't take it for granted. I guess you're right because that's something I hadn't really thought because once you're, if you're, you kind of inherit something that's already a success, you know the pressure is on you not to mess it up because yeah. you know that will be on you then, right? Yeah, it, it, for me, the mindset was never don't mess it up. The mindset was never you need to do something really special here to get any recognition mm -hmm. you know, otherwise it's like oh you've been given it you know when i when i announced the book you know one or two tweets going oh yeah well it's easy isn't it just have you know have a, have a rich dad you know it's like yeah but you know there are other sides to the struggle do you know what i mean it's not like you can't just be free and fly like a bird with nothing to lose and you know if you if you make it you're a hero and if you don't you know ultimately if you don't make anything special of this business you were just 
given a job and you know your dad was great and you sort of carried it on so for me it's about pushing the boundaries and it's about just just keep on striving for for, for success as we talked about and, and trying to achieve yeah. again like if you go back to the comedy world a promoter in that in the comedy world will be booking tours and they're booking rooms or theaters or stadiums depending on who you're dealing with how different is that in the boxing world is it is it basically it's hard the same job are you booking probably, a probably and filling it yeah i mean you're creating almost like a separate business per show you know i mean for us it's about you know establishing the acts on the card just like they might be it's about securing the venue it's about selling tickets. It's about selling broadcast rights. It's about selling sponsorship. It's about you know operationally making sure the show's a success. So probably quite similar in that respect as well. Maybe I'll move into comedy as well. You know, we'll see. But I think that it's about creating a great event. You know, that that's what we're really good at. You know, if it's across snooker, if it's across boxing, you look at darts. I mean, darts has become a huge success globally now as well. And that's basically created off what is just a great night out. You know, it's 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 garnering huge ratings on TV, selling a huge amount of tickets when we're able to, and it's just you know it's just the feel of of a great great event, great night out. This this might sound really thick, right? But I've not really thought about it before. But so you got sports like football, which are seasonal, right? So is boxing literally a sport that goes event by event? It is, but notoriously, August and January are quiet months for the right. broadcaster. You know, they're always going to want to put um, the best slots for, for live sport. And August is, you know, a lot of people are away in August. And then in January, a lot of people are coming back from holiday and, and getting started again. And, and most fighters, you know, most fighters like to get out before the end of the year. No one really wants to fight in January or February because they want to have a nice Christmas dinner. You know, these guys are making weight. They're having to go to the gym every day and train and spar. So, but boxing's be- become so big that it's no longer seasonal, and there's not actually any no long. There's no longer a break. You know, it's just twelve months a year now. Um, but a lot of it is geared around the schedule and, and the requests and the requirements of each individual broadcaster. So Sky might say, you know, we've got, you know, this Saturday, for example, right? We've got Liverpool against West Ham. And then we'll go into your show. So we'll bring that huge audience with a, with us into the boxing. Or they might say, you know, we've got no live sport that weekend. This is at the date we want. And, you know, ultimately we're, you know, we're, we're governed and driven and, and uh, they're our bosses, the broadcasters, you know, that they'll tell us when they want the events. I've literally just changing t- tackle a bit. I've literally just finished watching all six, the first six Rocky films, right? Yeah. <laughs> what I, for the first time? No, I've seen them loads. I just love them. Um, okay, I, I, I've, I'll still, I've still got to, I've still got to rewatch Creed and Creed Two, but um, I just but I, last week. I mean, we've just spent the last three weeks, an hour each week, basically talking about Rocky, right? right. So how? Uh, so it's ridiculous not to bring it up now that we've actually got a boxing promoter on. <laughs> but like, um, so how authentic is uh, is the world that those films have created? You know what? I think actually, other than the fights themselves, mm. I think I think they are a little bit authentic. You know, I mean, generally, you know, when you look at like Apollo Creed mm. or you know the the Russian in Rocky Four, I mean, that, those those kind of guys and those kind of situations do exist. The fights are a little bit on the unrealistic side, 
I think a lot of them would have been stopped sort of 20 minutes before uh, before the, sure. the ref well, jumped in or the in, knockout. In Rocky 2, he doesn't protect his face <laughs> at all. He's just <laughs> literally got his arms out here and he's getting punched yeah. over and over again. And you just that, think... Yeah, that's slightly unrealistic. But, you know, a lot of the stuff, you know, when you look at... I love the early stuff, you know, like when he's in Philadelphia and he's he goes around to see Mickey at, you know, Mickey's gym in the corner. And, you know, he's got the, the uncle... You know, and and he's and he's struggling financially, and yeah, these these are all you know these are all real scenarios that that you and that's why I'm saying there's great characters everywhere, everywhere in boxing, but some stories are always untold. But you know, I, I love for me Rocky Four. I think is my favourite. I love yeah. that film. But you know, when you watch Creed, did you see Tony Bellew in there? You know, mm-hmm. who was really the the bad guy? Well, Tony Bellew is my friend and fighter, and. He finished a fight once. He said, there's something I've got to tell you. And I said, what? I mean, this is just an ordinary guy from Liverpool, right, at the time. I said, what? He said, uh, I'm going to be in the new Rocky film. And I went, <laughs> Tony. I was like, don't, don't get out of it. You know, he went, oh, seriously. He went, they watched one of my interviews and they've got in touch with me and I'll, I'll show you the contract. I'm like, I said, what is it like? A stunt double? He went, no, it's like the main baddie. And they actually filmed the final scene at Everton yeah. Football Club, right? And I don't know how he managed to talk him into doing that. And six months after the fight, he fought for the world title at Everton, Tony right. Bellew, and won. And I called the show the real-life Rocky story. Right. Right. And it was it was just amazing. I, I, I'm still, you know, clueless and oblivious as to how he got that role. He was quite good, actually. But yeah. it's just it was, so yeah, yeah. random, so random. He was, as well, but with the Rocky films, um, uh, I think Rocky 4 or Rocky 5 was like the last one where they actually used actors to be um, to be his opponents. And then yeah. Rocky 6, the guy that played Mason Dixon in Rocky 6, he was a real boxer. Yeah, and then you had Andre Ward, you know, he was, he was in it as well. He was a, a unified world champion, so, yeah. Mm. That's interesting. Do you think that... I don't want to go on and on about Rocky. We've literally spent three hours. <laughs> but do you think that those sort of films have had, like, a positive impact on... on definitely. The... Definitely. You know, I mean, I love Karate Kid, personally. But you never really see Karate take off, did you? No. You know, wrong person running it. But I think that, yeah, I mean, boxing's so historical, isn't it? You know, there's so many... So much history in the sport. And, and actually, I mean, how many people watch Rocky? Hmm. I mean, everyone knows about the Rocky movies, don't they? I mean, especially people from our generation. Blimey, when I mean, you were talking about um, characters, that's what you think about in the Rocky movies. All oh, the kind of, all the sort of baddies, the all the villains, yeah, you know, exactly. the Russian champion, Apollo Creed. You know, hmm. they're almost yeah. like cartoonish, aren't they? By the time cool. they kind of, but it, yeah. but it does, but that, you know exactly who they are when you're kids, and you know, you know all the personalities of all the kind of opponents. In it. But that's when like, you create a big fight. You know, when you create the personalities and they meet, that's when you get a major fight, major fight, you know. You don't get a major fight when it's two blokes no one's really heard of or you haven't really got an opinion of, you know, having a fight. Sometimes you get a great fight, but it's a, it's a huge fight when you get two characters and, and you understand the narrative and the story. And there you have it in full flow in a film How situation much? where they're building this fight between the two people throughout the film. 
how much how much um say so and how much control do the actual individual boxers have on where they take their careers are they being led a lot or are they coming into the room saying i've got an idea for a fight i want to do it here with this guy so, some are opinionated but nearly all fighters will have well you have to have a registered manager as mm. well some have lawyers you know sometimes their trainer gets involved fighters have to be careful because they'll 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 fight anyone you know they'll take any fight they just love to fight so they need to be looked after properly and guided properly and that comes from having a great team you know a good manager good promoter good lawyer sometimes and, and a top training team as well because these guys do need to be protected you know they don't have the experience of managing a career or managing their money you know that they, they just they, they love to fight and, and you know you've got to guide them in the right way um, something we haven't really mentioned at all yet is uh, we asked you to talk about some of your favourite things. And uh, one of the films you've come up with, you've got Truman Show, Jerry Maguire, yeah. and Stand By Me. Jerry Maguire, yeah. is, he's a sports agent in that, right? Yeah, well, that's when I was doing the same thing, you know, and I was working on the golf tour. And that was like, I could just see myself in that, not really in Tom Cruise, but in that kind of life, <laughs> you know, that kind of lifestyle on the road all the time, you know, on the sidelines, cheering for your guy, the disappointment of maybe an injury or the, you know, the elation of, of a victory. And it is, it's so rewarding. You know, my dad always said, if you could get 1% of the adrenaline a fighter gets when they walk to the ring, you're happy. You know, I feel like I'd get 50 or 60% a lot of the time, you know, and, and that's why really, I think anyone that works in sport is a failed, failed athlete. I'm a failed athlete. I would have much rather been out there competing, but I wasn't good enough. So this is the next best thing for me to be involved in sport is what, what I love. Um, so, yeah, that was that was Jerry Maguire. Um, Truman Show, I just think he's such a, a great movie. And I can just I just see the world going that way as well. You know, I just think it's almost like we're all being watched, aren't we? You know, and I just think if you haven't seen Truman Show, I just I think Jim Carrey is just such a great actor. And in that, I think he's absolutely brilliant. And Stand By Me is like an old classic that I used to watch, you know, growing up. And when you look back on that cast now, like Corey Feldman and River Phoenix, mm -hmm. you know, was in was like one of his big breakthrough films as well. You know, that was that was another great film. I've watched I've watched Stand By Me again. That's one of my favourite directors is Rob Reiner. Mm -hmm. I watched Stand By Me again. Uh, it must have been like a couple of months ago now. And mm -hmm. I grew up watching it. Have you seen it recently? No. It's just absolutely devastating from start to finish. It's just like by the end of it, I felt absolutely exhausted. But mm. I think Stand By so Me... So you turned on Rocky instead? And so then I was just like, I felt, well, yeah, Stand, by, Stand By Me is such a satisfying film. It's fantastic, but it's emotionally exhausting. And when you watch something like Rocky, you feel so sort of like, you know, uh, elated. But like, um, yeah, those are really great films that you picked. Um, um have you ever, well, you just mentioned it there. Did you ever consider boxing as a career, or not even a career? How have you ever sort of? No, done I had it a go. I had, I had a go as a kid. Uh, I went, I was, I boxed at Billericay Boys Boxing Club, and I really thought I was going to be a future world champion, and I was absolutely useless. You know, I was like hanging around with, you know, all these great world champions, and I sort of went in there with new boots on and shiny shorts, and I took an absolute pasting in there from kids that were a lot, lot tougher than me. So. Yeah, again, I was I was a good cricketer. You know, I played for Essex for about five or six years up till just before sort of professional level. Um, and you know, I think uh, again, I played. I loved football. 
there's a bit in the book actually where growing up it was always about winning you know so like my dad would say to me how many runs did you get today and i'd go oh only four. Oh, come on son you know you've got to do better than that you know it wasn't like oh well how did the team get on or you know at least you took part it was just purely based on results you know mm. And he was quite brutal. I remember playing football. He just, he picked me up and he'd, he'd go, oh, I'll tell you what, son, you are so slow. He said, you turn like an oil tanker. You know what I mean? I think, bloody hell. You know, I thought that's a bit harsh. But that, that's what it was about. No no punches being, just just pure honesty and, you know, brutal honesty. Of, of, you know, ultimately, winning is everything. That, mm. that is his mentality. And is that your mentality? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, I accept you don't always win. Because you can't be, you know, you have to be able to accept that. But you can't expect to fail. Um, you know, I think you have to say, you know, that there is no, I think you shouldn't, although you have to be able to accept failure, I find that very hard to say, to be honest with you. Because, you know, it, it's, it, it has to be about winning. You have to have a winning mentality. It's got hurt when you lose. It's got hurt really bad. You know, th- because that's think- how you remember it, you know, and that's how you come back stronger. You know, there's a saying in boxing, you never learn, you, you never, sorry, you never lose, you learn. Yeah. But you, you do lose and it's got to hurt. And I say to you, I remember when Anthony Joshua lost against um, Andy Ruiz. You know, he was, yeah, no, I'm go- I knew I, I could just see how much he was hurting inside, you know, and the humiliation of defeat. But you have to use that as energy and fuel to come back better and stronger. Mm. And, and that's the same in business. We come to the end of the chat. I mean, that's that's been a brilliant hour. Brilliant. Um, uh, but we've we're going to play a game with you now. So okay. I'm, I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel. Nathaniel's going to take over. Nathaniel, take over. Okay. This is the game it's called Better or Worse, and all you have to do is say whether the next person on the list is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion to score points. Okay. Okay. Beginning with Craig David. Is Daniel Craig better or worse than Craig David? Oh, I don't know. I like. I actually, I like Craig David. That was like my. Do I like? Do I like Craig David? No, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Oh, oh, sorry. So I've got to judge if you like him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Daniel, I, think do I, going, think... I think you're going for Daniel Craig. I am. One point. Yeah. Dan Aykroyd, better or worse than Daniel Craig? You're going for Dan Aykroyd. Yes, I am. Daniel Radcliffe, better or worse than Dan Aykroyd? Worse. You're still going for Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, correct. Daniel Kaluuya, better or worse than Daniel Radcliffe? Who's Daniel Who? He's in Get Out. All right, well, I've never heard of him, so you must like him. So I'm going for you preferring to Daniel Radcliffe. Correct. Daniel Day-Lewis, better or worse than Daniel Kaluuya? (laughs) Um, I think you're going to go for Daniel Kalula. No. Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, fallen. Danny Glover, better or worse than Daniel Day-Lewis? Worse. Oh, I think you like this guy. I think you're a Daniel Day-Lewis fan, so I think you've settled with him. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> Danny DeVito, better or worse than Danny Glover? Better. I think I think you go for Danny DeVito. Correct. Danny Minogue, better or worse than <laughs> Danny DeVito? Worse. Definitely worse. Worse. Kylie Minogue, better or worse than Danny Minogue? Better. 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 Kyle McLaughlin. Better or worse than Kylie Minogue? Blimey. Um, I think he went worse. Better. 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 
Oh. It's a good one, though. And it's you a good one. That's exactly a good one. Right. What'd you get? You got eight. You got eight. Yeah. Well done. You got eight, which means that you're not as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manford, Joe Skladany with ten, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine. But you are as good as Susie Dent, Charles Eston, David Hepworth, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kine, Miranda Raisin, Chris Starks, Stu <laughs> Whiffin with eight. Blimey, that, that, sounds, much, that sounds like average to me. And you're All much better. You're much better than James that. King, Henry Normal, Johnny Vegas with seven, and Gary Delaney with six. So you've uh, you've done all right. Yeah, you've done good, all right. Good. You've good, done well. Good. That was good, and you played the game correctly, which um, is good, the best thing about it. Weren't pure guesses like some of them. So your your book, uh, Relentless: Twelve Rounds to Success, is out now. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us this afternoon, uh, and. Uh, uh, and thank you all for listening to our show. Uh, that's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Nathaniel, and it's goodbye from Eddie Hearn. Thank you very much. Uh, take care. Talk to you next week. Hold up. 